Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I have the real pleasure in person to talk to the author of Democracy Against Domination, published in 2016 by Oxford University Press. The author is Sabil Rockman. Sabil, how are you? Hi, Heath. Great to be here. Sabil, it's such a pleasure um, to have you in person to talk about the book. Um, I've talked to you before about the book, but now we're going to talk about it for the podcast. Before we get to it, let's hear just a little bit more about yourself. Who are you? Great. Well, it's um, glad to be here and, and talk with you about all of this. Uh, and hello to the listeners. Um, so I teach administrative and constitutional law at Brooklyn Law School. I'm also a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and New America and generally work on issues of uh, economic policy and democratic theory. The book is is in many ways as broad as you just described some of your background. And, and you, have, you have even minimized the, the, the breadth of your um, previous experiences and, and what you think about. It's a book about, about law and about politics and about government. You take on a lot in the book, um, though this is the rare book uh, with no subtitle, uh, which I'm not going to ask you about because yeah. it's just something that I think alone is, is uh, worth, worth pondering. Um, so let's put that to the side for a second, unless you feel like yeah. there's a really interesting uh, story behind that. Let's uh, start with some terminology that's important to kind of get on the table before we talk about the meat of the book. So in the book, you refer to managerialism, particularly in the early parts of the book. I wonder if you would place that term into context, uh, both historical, but also how it relates to the purpose of the book. So tell us about managerialism. Absolutely. And, and, and I think as, as you alluded, the, uh, the book is really trying to look at both how our ideas about the role of government and the relationship between democracy and economy has changed over time. So looking at sort of the intellectual history of that and the very real sort of implications that those ideas have for uh, how we design public policy, how our institutions operate. And so I'm kind of really looking at that intersection of ideas and institutions. And so uh, for me, managerialism is a key concept in the book um, because I think it, it captures a lot of uh, sort of one particular mode of thinking about the economic role of the state. So, um, the best way to think about it, I think, is uh, as a as a line that connects uh, sort of what we think of as the classic New Deal state of FDR uh, through to what we saw in the last few years with the Obama administration trying to respond to the financial crisis. And um, in the book, I kind of frame it, this particular approach to government as managerialism uh, in, in a couple of senses. So I think the idea of managerialism in part is about uh, a particular view of the purposes of economic policy that on this view, uh, the role of government is to, uh, to manage, to optimize the functioning of the market, you know, closing market failures, uh, managing excessive risk and so on. And so this, you can kind of, uh, you see this, for example, in, um, a lot of how, uh, the, the Dodd-Frank Wall Street reform bill from 2010 deals with the problem of too big to fail finance, you know, essentially, uh, addresses that by giving a lot more resources and authority uh, and power to uh, technocratic regulators, right, at the Fed, at the SEC, 
Um, and that's a perfectly reasonable way of thinking about this, right? And harkens back to, in some ways, the New Deal. Uh, but by, by focusing in on that in, in the book, I try to raise some questions about, um, A, historically, that that's not the only way that, um, in American politics, we've thought about the role of, of, of the state. Uh, and B, that there are some sort of normative and, and sort of policy implications that might be uh, problematic if you sort of play that out. Yeah, let, let's talk about just that. Um, this managerial, uh, managerial approach to governance, as you note, emphasizes expertise, but is also prone to certain kinds of problems. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about in which ways we might worry about corruption and regulatory capture in such a system. Why, why are those two of, of the real sort of the, the areas of concern that we might have? Yeah. So, um, you know, I think we have, we're used to thinking about our, our political discourse as a, uh, as a clash between sort of, uh, free market, laissez-faire, kind of libertarian view, um, you know, which is kind of hostile to government regulation, right? Pres- uh, presumes a kind of, uh, automatic self-correcting nature to, uh, economic markets and these, uh, defense of government regulation, government oversight of, uh, in various forms. Um, but as you, as you mentioned in your question, the idea of managerialism uh, really depends on a, uh, a deep faith in expertise and in regulatory institutions to serve the public good. Um, now I, in many ways, I'm sympathetic to that view, but what I think we, um, can tend to overlook when we're sort of trying to give it the argument for why government regulation is needed is that there are very real uh, concerns about how do we ensure governmental institutions, regulatory institutions, um, are resistant to, uh, to regulatory capture, to undue influence on the part of, uh, regulated industries, right, or other interest groups. Um, and how do we ensure that it's uh, the idea of economic regulation by experts can be reconciled with our sort of normative values of democratic accountability, democratic responsiveness, democratic legitimacy? Um, now I think oftentimes in, in our sort of political discourse, you'll hear those concerns raised on the right, usually as a, as a vehicle for trying to get rid of, dismantle the regulatory state entirely. That's not necessarily the direction I want to go in, in the book. Part of the, the, the drive of the book is to try to say that, look, there are some real concerns here, but our response shouldn't be to dismantle the regulatory state because we need it to respond to all sorts of problems in uh, an unchecked market economy. The answer should be to think more deeply about how we can democratize the regulatory state to bind it more closely to some of our ideas about democratic participation and responsiveness. And so as uh, the book kind of moves from critique to construction, I try to engage then with um, other literatures and ideas, for example, in administrative law uh, about how we could rejigger the administrative process to make it more democratic, to make it more resistant to uh, worries about capture or uh, failure. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about that theoretical scholarship that you turn to. There's a couple of scholars, uh, legal and political, uh, that you focus on. I wonder if you can, um, you know, briefly talk about each and, and how they, uh, what they do to build this argument, this sort of counter narrative that you're building about the solution to regulatory capture. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I, I think about this sort of in, uh, uh, at, at three levels and, uh, you know, sort of synthesizing a bunch of different literature. So the, the think about it uh, historically, theoretically, and then, and then practically. Right. So, um, historically, part of the, uh, uh, one thing that's really fascinating to me is when you go back to the intellectual origins of, <clears throat> of the regulatory state, you know, we, 
we're all familiar with the New Deal, but in some ways the more interesting period historically is before the New Deal in the populist and progressive era, sort of late 19th, early 20th century. And this is where American politics is sort of trying to wrestle with the upheavals of industrialization, um, and that's provoking a bunch of different reform ideas and, and sort of uh, political theorizing about the role of government and governmental institutions. And when you look at the thought of this period, I think you see a much more variated set of ideas about how we would design these institutions. So definitely there is um, the, the sort of uh, strain that emphasizes expertise and the emergence of social science as a way to manage a complex modern economy. But you also see the emergence of a, of a sort of morally rich discourse uh, about the problem of power and the idea of democracy. And so if you think about people like, say, Louis Brandeis, right, for, for, you know, Brandeis was in part a proponent of scientific management, but he also saw the central problem of economic policy as um, a moral challenge to counteract concentrations of private power, say, in monopolies or, uh, fina- you know, kind of J.P. Morgan as a financial um, uh, financial giant, right? Uh, so he's worried about private power, and he sees in the idea of democracy a way to check private power through governmental institutions. And so um, in a lot of his writings and in a lot of his legal advocacy, you see an attempt to try to synthesize the idea of democratic mobilization on the one hand and expertise that can help sort of uh, effectuate the democratic public's policy desires on the other. And you see this similar kind of marriage of democracy and expertise in the work of people like John Dewey. So historically, I think there's a really interesting um, uh, kind of attempt to uh, reorient the relationship between regulatory expertise and ideals of democracy. That, I think, links up to a bunch of similar currents in contemporary democratic theory, which I talk about in the book. Um, and you put all of that together, and then I think that points to a bunch of practical uh, ideas or debates that are uh, happening in, in areas like regulatory reform. So um, I talk about a, a couple of different uh, avenues that this could take, uh, for example, incorporating more forms of stakeholder representation and proxy advocacy within the regulatory state, um, experimenting with modes of participatory governments, participatory governance through the regulatory process. Uh, these are all things that sort of would be well within bounds of uh, current administrative law, but not necessarily sort of prioritized areas of uh, of policy innovation. Now, even before we get to that, um, why why not? Because one of the the um, possible directions you might have taken is to shift some of this back to elected officials, shift it back to the legislative branch in some capacity. Your solution is not that type of democracy. Um, why not? What's, what's the disadvantage of, of moving, let's say, the Dodd-Frank approach um, into uh, congressional committees, for right. example? So right. why not that democratic institution? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question and something... Um, that I struggle with uh, in uh, when thinking about these issues, you know, I mean, on the one hand, it's it's certainly true that you can't have a, an effective democracy uh, when the the seat of democratic sovereignty, the legislature itself, is is corroded by you know interest group influence, corruption, uh, sclerosis, right, what have you. So, um, certainly, I think that's a that's a, an important project of uh, figuring out how we can make our legislative institutions more democratically responsive. Uh, but I think the, um, I think just because, you know, as a student of the regulatory state, I'm just skeptical that we can fully sort of reabsorb the decision-making apparatus of 
the modern administrative state back into the legislature. I, I just I, I think it's simply not realistic or feasible even to uh, think about a policymaking process that is purely legislative without an administrative component. I think the even with a well-functioning legislature, you necessarily would still have to have this sort of um, uh, uh, stages of policymaking where the legislature sets the broad terms of what the agencies then sort of refine and implement and execute, right? That's the nature of the delegation, you know, from the legislature to the administrative state. Uh, that, I think, is endemic to modern governance. So even with a well-functioning legislature, we still have to grapple with this question of how do we uh, how should agencies go about making the mix of normative, moral, and technical judgments that go into, say, implementing, uh, you know, a financial reform? You know, even if Dodd-Frank had in the statute required, say, a 15-to-1 leverage cap or a strong Volcker rule uh, per- against proprietary trading or even uh, breaking up the banks, you know, all of which were proposed in Congress, right, in 2010, even on those terms, you still need... Uh, the agencies to implement and design those policies. So there's still political decision-making happening downstream from the legislature, which means that there's still this question about the the relative democraticness or responsiveness of those decisions. So if we accept sort of this abstract normative argument, um, what does this mean in practice? Uh, What really do you have in mind uh, that would um, alter this and enhance uh, democracy? What the specific kind of democratic institutions that you would see as compatible with financial regulation, um, but also with the aspirations to, to be more democratic. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, uh, to get to that question, we step back just for a second. I think the, um, the idea of democracy that I'm working with in the book is, is both substantive and procedural, right? So, so in some of the, you know, the title of the book uh, is, is the idea in a nutshell, right? I think sort of, the central problem in the modern economy in, in general, right, is, is a moral problem of domination, of economic power, right? What we really, it's not just about market failures or market efficiency. What we really ought to be worried about is the degree to which our economic system, which is a product of law and policy, uh, concentrates power, uh, distributes uh, economic opportunity in different ways, right? Um, and so something like the too-big-to-fail problem is a great uh, distillation of that sort of moral challenge. At the same time, we have these sort of procedural questions, for, if we can call it that, right, about uh, who's involved in the governmental decision-making and so on. So, so I think the idea of democracy that I'm working with is, is both substantive, as in oriented against the problem of domination, and procedural, as in committed to a more inclusive, participatory mode of making decision-making. So, so then if we think about sort of what this means in practice, I think, I, I, I think the, the implications sort of also uh, arise in these two domains, right? So uh, substantively, I think, you know, we've seen even through the last uh, most recent election, the sort of persistent concern about concentrated economic power, whether it's Wall Street or uh, other uh, sort of modes of, uh, of private power, sort of indicates that you know, there's a very real sense in which our democracy is not real unless we are able to impose more uh, structural restraints on concentration of private power. So one of the applications of the book I talk about are sort of what would be more um, structural limits that we could have imagined, say, on too-big-to-fail financial firms as a component of assuring a, dem- a broader sort of democratic system. That's, that's on the substantive side. On the procedural side, I think there are a bunch of ways that we could instantiate 
some of these ideas of including greater representation and participation in the administrative process. Um, I'll mention just uh, uh, two very quickly. You know, I think there's uh, some really interesting ideas that come out of how, for example, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau operates. This is also a creation of the 2010 reforms. And, you know, it's a regulatory agency like many others, but uh, in a lot of its day-to-day operations, it actually invests pretty heavily in different forms of stakeholder engagement, you know, uh, uh, civic participation as a way of setting agendas and uh, identifying sort of the problems that the agency then uh, can focus on. So there's a lot of interesting sort of uh, practice practices that come out of examples like that. Um, and then I give a bunch of examples uh, more from the war on poverty era where you had a more concerted effort uh, by agencies and also by, by Congress to uh, experiment with different modes of uh, grassroots, bottom-up participation in, in setting economic policy and, and regulation in a bunch of different fronts. Um, now, that, I think, also connects up with a bunch of other uh, innovations, experiments in um, participatory governance today. Uh, but these are the kinds of things that, that I'm interested in exploring more. <clears throat> this all uh, is so compelling in so many ways. Um, but we have a new administration taking control of government nearly as we speak. Um, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit and, and assess either some of the key uh, appointments that have been made or the, the direction that the regulatory state might take and how compatible it is with this vision. Do you see the potential for the new administration not taking your book necessarily seriously, but taking some of the underlying thoughts, given that they, we, as you know, we had a campaign where many of these same concerns were expressed uh, by both Republicans and also Democrats. And so are we likely to see the direction that, that you uh, suggest or the other that you mentioned earlier, which is the opposition to the regulatory state in the form of more laissez-faire and more market control? And so um, what do you see? Yeah, right. It's a great question. I think, uh, uh, you know, those of us who, who do political science and public policy for a living are sort of all trying to figure out, right, what, uh, what's coming down the pike as, uh, as the administration turn, turns over. Um, so this last, uh, this campaign and this new administration, I think, sort of, uh, really sharpen or, or cast into sharper relief, uh, a lot of these contrasts that I'm talking about in the book. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, I think there's a good case to be made that, um, you know, the, the campaign we just saw on both sides really uh, pitted this sort of managerial, technocratic view of, of government, you know, with all of its virtues and limitations uh, against populist challenges from both left and right. And in, and in some ways, the thing that united, or I shouldn't say united, the, uh, one of the common threads between sort of the populism of the right and populism of the left that we saw over uh, the campaign was this deep anxiety with uh, economic power. Uh, and and the, the sort of uh, sense that our government and our democracy is sort of um, uh, gotten away from us, right? It's, it's sort of uh, being overrun by uh, various forms of, of economic power and economic instability that seem to sort of be beyond the scope of what our current sort of officials are able to deal with right now. That, that's a sentiment. It's not you know, necessarily sort of fully uh, accurate. But I think that clash sort of speaks to some of the limitations of the managerialism that I criticize in the book um, and, and sort of shows the need for recovering a more uh, thick, robust, uh, morally rich idea of democracy as anti-domination. 
So that's the first point I would make. The second point I would make is that, um, you know, I think as, as we're seeing the Trump administration come into office and, you know, obviously lots of things can change, but, um, it looks to me like we're sort of seeing a, a, a convergence of, of two, two strains on the right, both of which I think are, are quite hostile to some of the uh, normative ideas that I, I talk about in the book. Um, the first is uh, a sort of repackaged version of kind of familiar deregulatory, you know, laissez-faire, libertarian type uh, p- policy agenda. And I think, I think we're likely to see a big push both from Congress and from the new administration to dismantle a lot of the regulations, say, on finance or on uh, competition policy or what have you. And, and so that would very much sort of be a problem uh, on the sort of uh, democracy as anti-domination view. Um, but I think we're seeing that com- uh, combined with a sort of uh, kind of a, a, an exclusionary version of populism to the extent that that's still sort of part of the new administration sort of uh, rhetoric. It's it so it's always you know it sounds populist and that it's you know anti Wall Street uh, anti anti government corruption and so on uh, but it's an exclusionary version of populism in that you know the subtext or in many ways the oh the explicit text of uh, kind of Trumpian populism is a particularly narrow notion of who the people are who are the people that uh, that this this version of populism is trying to protect it is not the sort of more uh, racially and economically diverse. Uh, an inclusive notion of the people that, that I would argue would be sort of a central part of a truly de- small d democratic, uh, response to the problem of economic power, right? So, so I think we're, we're seeing, um, sort of a, uh, a, a threat to the idea, the thick idea of democracy that I'm articulating, both in terms of its exclusionary notion and in terms of its sort of deregulatory, uh, notion. Um, that I think, you know, uh, sort of a bunch of normative grounds, right? We, we ought to not, not, not promote, not desire. Yeah, the, the very interesting book published by Oxford University Press in 2016 is Democracy Against Domination. Spiel, thank you so much for your time today. Right, thank you, Heath.